Well, hello, 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 and welcome back to Queer Town, the podcast shining a light on Austin's queer community. I'm seated here with the lovely and talented Laura De La Fuente. Hi, everybody. It's so great to be here. Uh, in I'm Austin, Texas. Physically IRL in Austin, Texas, in a gorgeous backyard. Should we say where we are? Yes. This episode is sponsored by Nora and Ananya's Backyard. Ah! This is our first ever outdoor record, and we are excited to be out here amongst all of the trees and the loud neighbors and the airplanes <laughs> and uh, hopefully the branches that will not fall on us. There was one that just fell close to my head. Yes, we did have an outdoor lighting, cute outdoor lighting, not the lighting's fault, fall a mere two feet away from Mesa's head. <laughs> uh, the ice has since melted, but... Does that mean that things are still precarious out here? Yes. So this yes. is also an at-risk podcast. Yes, the, the wild outdoors. Here we are. Queertown has finally arrived. But fortunately, it is not just the two of us. Today, we are sitting down with Armin Dory, a doctoral student at the University of Texas. Under the advisement of Dr. Stephen Russell in the Human Development and Family Sciences Department, Armin researches factors that influence health and well-being among LGBTQ plus populations. With a goal of understanding how research and social change intersect, Armin focuses on specific populations like LGBTQ plus folks or at-risk youth and aims to answer specific questions like, what can we do to encourage them to seek out resources in an effort to improve their lives? Wow. What an intro. I think we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, heck yeah, we do. Armin. Welcome to Queertown! How does it feel to be here? Uh, I'm a little nervous, but also like really excited. Uh, We are so, so we are so excited. So excited to dig in into your background and your history and to learn more about what you have to say. So uh, let's just keep in mind that you are seated with two comedians who are not researchers and do not have graduate degrees of any shape or form. No, uh, So we are excited to listen and to learn. Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we spoke a little bit before you came here today, which I think was super helpful just so... You know, those of us in Queer Town could kind of uh, wrap our heads around what exactly it is that you were doing. And you had mentioned that one of the things that attracted you to the program that you're in at UT was your advisor, Dr. Stephen Russell, uh, and the work that he does. And it seems like he's just a very renowned individual within the space that you are working in. So what is it like to get to work with him, to learn, to collaborate, to um, sort of have that working relationship with someone who's so established? in this field that you're in? Well, first off, I'm glad you were able to figure out what I'm doing because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely the reason why I was attracted to the program is my advisor, Dr. Stephen Russell, um, who, you know, just right off the bat is a really renowned researcher in LGBT adolescence and bullying and sort of a lot of the factors that make uh, school horrible for queer kids. Um but I think also the fact that he is someone who's made it so far in academia and in his career as a queer person, I think was also really attractive um, in the sense that, you know, there are plenty of people who do queer research who may or may not be queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to see someone who, God, he's going to kill me if I say this, but of an older generation, <laughs> um, you know, around my parents' age. Oh, God. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, hey, that, that's just a fact right there. I think so. Well, okay, like, are we saying, like, what what age range are we saying? Mm, 50s. 50s, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see someone of that generation to be so prominent and so successful sure. and be openly queer, I think, is also what kind of attracted me to the idea of, you know, being taken under his wing. And when you uh, applied here, did you have a really crystallized idea of what it is that you wanted to focus on? Or did that kind of materialize once you were here and once you were sort of taking classes and figuring out what exactly your graduate path was going to be? I still don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I had no idea. I think I knew coming in that there's just so much work to do. And I came in with the mindset of gosh, I wish I could just, I will help with anything, I think was my sort of mindset. Um, You know, 
if you tell me to study discrimination against trans people and like laws being passed, like, okay, I'm on it. Like that's something that needs to be done. If you want me to study bullying in schools, that needs to, you know. So I think there's just such a spectrum of issues that need attention that I think I came into it with the idea that whatever I do, it's going to be a worthy cause. Um, And I think your first year of grad school, which I had the pleasure of doing half of uh, during the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So you already have no idea what you're doing, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Just in the in the weeds and just figuring out like what do I want to do who am I what stats like what is that you know and you kind of just work with what's available you know and a lot of it starts with hey I have this paper I have this project you know do you want to you know edit the commas And you're like yes I'll help with that and then by around I would say year three you personally I think I started to cement what my main focus was. Um, and I think it kind of happened a little bit by accident. Um, and I think we, we chatted about this a little bit before, but more recently I've definitely gone more in the direction of looking at early childhood experiences of queer kids mm-hmm. and particularly the development of a questionnaire that would assess really concrete things that queer kids experience all the time, like being, you know, gender policing by your parents or hearing homophobic, transphobic, biphobic things in, you know, amongst your family or on TV or et cetera. Um, and really making the case that that's a public health crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I definitely went introspective immediately when you said that and started scanning through Yeah. elementary and middle and high school and, I'm also teaching a class right now. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, give you three guesses what it is. Oh, it's gender sexual. It's gender sexual. <laughs> <laughs> you can, they, guess, they gave the queer that class. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and we don't, you know, we start very elementary stuff. Sure. Um, although I will say, just as an aside, I was super nervous to teach this class. Um, not because of the material, but just the students. And they're just something about bringing you back to elementary school, middle school, like trying to get your peers to like you. Yeah. Even though I'm their professor. Yeah. Um, But, and then also knowing that people come from like various uh, experience levels, right? And so I'm here teaching like the really basics of gender sexuality. And then the first day I'm like, okay, let's go around and introduce ourselves. And like, and you know, you hear like half the students be like, I'm so-and-so, I'm gender fluid. I go by they, they, and I'm like, okay, this class is going to be real boring for you because we're starting from square one. So you are like Julia Roberts in Mona Lisa Smile when she's walking all the students through the curriculum for Art 101 and they've read all of the books that are in the (laughs) syllabus and she's like, great, I don't know what I'm doing here. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That and then also a little touch of Abbott Elementary where uh, I feel like I'm surrounded by kids, not because they're immature, but just because I... It just brings me back to a time where I felt overwhelmed um, and I feel like they run the classroom and I'm like, what do you want to learn? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you let them I- impact curriculum in, in any way or is, is yours pretty set in, in what you want to do for the for the semester? Oh, they totally impact curriculum. That's awesome. Um, the class is, you know, mostly discussion-based anyways. Um, and honestly, no one's really, maybe I shouldn't admit this, no one is supervising me as, like, an instructor right now. Sure. So we're kind of just, like, camp, uh, what's it, School of Rock? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I just watched that. (laughs) rewatched it again. Uh, So that's what's happening. So I'm like, what do you want to learn? Like, what do you all want to talk about? That's incredible. Do you feel, are there any places specifically that you feel like the students are driving or more curious in, that might be too basic of a question, but I'm curious what, like, progressive 18 19 20 year olds are like wanting to learn more about totally yeah i i think on day one when i was going over some of the basics of the class um i had a student be like are we going to learn about like polyamory in the class sure that's a good question and i was like i don't know but we will now Mm -hmm. nice 
I took a history of human sexuality course at Mizzou where I went for college and that was taught through the lens of evolution. So that was a very fascinating thing where there was a lot of comparisons to other species. Uh, And that was like very beneficial, but it did feel like it didn't necessarily get to that um, actionable state of conversation that I maybe was looking for at that point in my life of uh, things that I could explore on my own. It was more of like, oh, uh, bonobos have estrus swellings and that's how they uh, attract mates. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting, but... Yeah, it was very interesting. Comparing these two places of, um, what, progressive thought on queerness? I don't know. That seems to be the way I'm describing it the most. I think, too, it's, I have to come at it from a very, like, humble perspective because it's not an exact science, exact art, or anything like that. Um, So even from the very beginning, when I was going over some basic terms, um, some students who are maybe more up-to-date, particularly if that like identity or experiences more relevant to them, they'd be like, oh, I don't think that's really the term that people use anymore. Like, that's kind of out of date. And I'm like, oh, like, thanks for, you know, letting me know. Like, I please do that more so that, you know, you all have tons of experiences, ton, like a wealth of knowledge that just hearing you speak is going to be more beneficial for your peers than if I just lecture at you. And I bet mean, mm-hmm. that's so validating from a... I want to say elder for, you know, the sake of... Are you calling me old? age space. Yes. I, no. <laughs> no, but like some people who might not have even any queer mentor in their space, to hear them be like, hey, I am open to progressive language. I am open to learning new terms. And I'm the one teaching... Like, to me, that puts it where it, where it, should, where it should be uh, in terms of gender identity and gender expression and sexuality. And it totally goes both ways, too, in the yeah. sense that, you know, there are going to be students who are not as familiar. Like I have a wide range of students in terms of people who are up to date on everything. They know all the terms and there are students who don't. And how do you sort of gently and respectfully push them in the right direction while also respecting that there may be students in the room who are impacted by the language that they use? Oh, that's within the class. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, is there, not fighting, but do they have... It's been amicable. super respectful yeah, so far. Cool. Um, so, you know, there have been a couple times where there's been a term that's maybe problematic or I used to think it's problematic or what have you. And I'll kind of just open the floor and be like, what do you all think? Like, this is my perspective, you know, from my intersection of identities. This is what I think about this. But what do you all think? Um, and, you know, I don't think there is necessarily a fully right or fully wrong answer. I think what I've kind of told them from day one is it's just all about respecting people. Um, And so ask someone how they identify. What do they want to, what terminology do they want to use? That's awesome. Yeah, that's a I really, take this class. really cool thing. I took it in yeah. the summer of, I'm a little bit older, I took it in the summer of 2006, gender and, and human sexuality, and there was so much combativeness with the oh, professor really? at that point, because I remember specifically just with sexuality, uh, the professor took like just maybe a very like conventional binary straight male, like cis straight male view of it, and was like, if a girl looks at you and smiles, the guy thinks she likes me. And it was something just really bizarrely, a bizarrely simplified way of looking if at her it. Waist to hip ratio is three quarters. And yes. Over- <laughs> yes. I have the book still. And at, there were times where I would ref- refer back to it. And now at this point, I'm like, oh, there was a lot of problematic shit in 2006. If I had my way, honestly, um, I would low-key just put on Drag Race, like, every class. Um, <laughs> but I don't have enough job security to do that. So. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. I hear that mm-hmm. thing. Uh, So one thing that we had talked about with your research, and I'm sure that this is also coming up with this course that you're uh, instructing right now, is the so what aspect Mm -hmm. of your findings. Uh, It really seems like you're interested in the concrete things that we can do with the information that we've been provided. What does that kind of look like on a... I don't know, month to month, project to project basis? Is that something where it's like you get a finding maybe in the spring and then in the fall that informs 
the work you're doing there or is it really more of like you are just publishing paper after paper and hoping that those papers can have a bigger picture policy change? It's definitely a mix, I would say. Um, interestingly enough, I think being in Texas um, and even Austin, um, there are more immediate pressing issues that come up. So my, my very first semester of grad school, my advisor immediately was like, the Austin School District is going to be voting on some sex ed curriculum. You know, someone's reached out. They know that this is my research. Like, they want us to put a brief together, right? And we did that in, like, a quick turnaround. It was a very immediate, you know, one- to two-page sort of outline of here are the best practices that research has shown for sex ed. And there are very real consequences to presenting that sort of information, right? It'll have a real impact on those kids and what they're going to learn. Um, and so that was much more uh, sort of an immediate impact. Mm -hmm. um, the academic paper route, it's a bit harder to tell um, because it can, you know, when you're in the ivory tower of academia, a lot of times it feels like you're just presenting your research to other academics, mm -hmm. right? And you're just going back and forth, ping-ponging your information, and it doesn't necessarily get out. Um, but that's definitely less the case in the research field that I'm in. Um, because, like I said, there are real pressing issues. So, for instance, you know, we know a legislature session is coming up in Texas, and we're already worried, right? Um, it does not look good. No, it does not. And... There's already, you know, we're prepared to respond to things. And whether that means putting statements out or pushing the university to put statements out, which, you know, is a very real sort of battle in itself. Um, I think those kind of issues, we just kind of have to handle them as they come. And the papers really are just more at, at the background, I would say. That makes complete sense because things are moving so fast right now. And we definitely felt that last year with the show because we were just a little slower moving with getting episodes out the door and so it's by the time we would release something we'd have to contextualize hey this big newsworthy thing happened and this is why we didn't mention it in the session that we had uh yeah so that's i think amazing that you are out there as a resource for political advocacy groups or activists or whoever to have you know real numbers to point to things because i think that that is one of the biggest, most crucial issues with what we're experiencing right now is that there's these generalized statements that are being weaponized against youth in particular. Yeah. And I think uh, for like progressive people who are speaking on our behalf, I think them referring to, you know, your research is something that that's what makes it so important because like we see people referencing studies from 2011 and a lot of times like Republican led discussions on it. And it's like, but now we have you and you are, you know, feeding the advocacy groups, feeding and any progressive who wants to talk on these subjects. And that's fucking cool that it's like, no, this is 2023 research. We're going to tell you now. Um, so that's definitely Texas based. Even. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're good. That's so maybe a sunny way of looking at it. But yeah, that's that's definitely. Oh, thank you. That yeah. makes me feel so good. <laughs> um, but I would say the the battle makes it sound so dramatic. It, it, is. Is. it, it is. is. It is. It is. It's life or death, honestly, for yeah. a lot of queer youth. Um, but that stuff is happening now. Yeah. Which is scary in the sense that we literally have a nemesis on the UT, like a research nemesis on the UT campus oh. who does literally like anti like LGBT research. Whoa. And it's just wild, right? Cause you think like, well, we're in academia kind of gives off the sense that, you know, it's a liberal space, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we're all smarter than this. We should know better, but no, like people are doing that work. People are publishing on you know, with really horrible sort of conclusions. Um, and you're kind of battling that too. So it's it's coming from all directions, honestly. Yeah. I guess I'd be, I'm kind of curious, like, if there's research that you've, like, paths that you've gone down where, you know, everyone has a bias, like, you try to be neutral, but, like, you, where you have an expected outcome and, like, just giving an example of maybe something that's surprised you along the way as you're going through. 
Definitely. So I had a paper come out last year um, that was looking at parenting aspirations of lesbian, gay, bisexual people. Um, And I was really looking at how discrimination and stigma fit into that. Um, And I found that those with more internalized homophobia actually are more likely to want kids. Wow. And it's this really, it's not what I would have expected. Um, And it's complicated, right? Because, you know, there's research out there showing not everybody wants kids and that's obviously fine. Um, But it kind of, it makes you think, right? Like if that's part of the motivating factor, it it complicates things. Um, You know, how much of wanting kids is, a normative thing that you experience in your adulthood and, you know, um, and how much of it is this belief that you need to conform to heteronormative ideas. Um, that same study also found that those who felt more stigma also had less of a belief that they could have kids. And it's really Mm -hmm. that discrepancy between wanting kids and thinking you're not going to make it happen. That's really harmful yeah fuck yeah that's big yeah wow wow wow. that's something that i just kind of need to sit with yeah big time it sort of makes sense though at least from the uh people that i've seen on dating apps who visually are so uninterested in appearing queer Mm. and oftentimes it's folks who you know have you know, religious ideology on their profile. They might have, um, you know, a golden retriever mm-hmm. or a golden doodle or something. And like, What's that's more heteronormative than a golden retriever. <laughs> truly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just things that, you know, are not bad. I think it's valid for a lot of people, but it is interesting that um, no one with that kind of profile has ever liked me. Or if they have, uh, it's like a very quick unlike as soon as they find out any detail about me. Where it's like, oh, wait, this person is, um, you know, like he hosts a queer podcast. He uh, is not super mask. It's all of these things that maybe chip away at this uh, belief, right? That if, um, I don't know, maybe they subscribe to a certain ideology, yeah. they'll be safer or more accepted or something. Do you think that's, is that something that you've ever like gotten feedback on or is it more just the way that these people have made you feel? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely much more of a perception on my end. Uh, I would be curious to like, you know, ask that question via like a, a feedback form. <laughs> hey, so it seems like you just unmatched me. Uh, could you uh, let me know why? <laughs> let me know if you need me to organize that. Uh, Qualtrics, uh, I will put a survey that together. For Honestly, you. I might hit you up on that <laughs> because um, I don't think any of those people would fill that out. But for my own reasons, I would just love to know. You never know. You have to incentivize them the same way we incentivize study participants. Like, a five dollar gift card, mm-hmm. or like you'll be put in a raffle for a hundred dollar gift card. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People respond to it exactly. <laughs> I, I I'm go- going back to your study. I'm curious about how, and maybe this is too much in the weeds. And let me know. But like the questions that were asked in order for people to answer how they how much internalized homophobia they have. Yeah, is that mm-hmm. okay? That's a great question. Thank you. Okay. Um, Yeah, so it's a pretty standard measure that's used. Um, It was developed by queer researchers, uh, you know, a decade and a half ago. Um, And it has questions like, I see being LGBT as a fault, for instance, right? Like, rate one to five. So it's not black or white, right? Oh, no. I'm just imagining the, the inner dialogue with someone who's like, am I a three or am I a four? (laughs) <laughs> oh, poor baby! No. Wow. It, yeah. Is it is it my fault that I'm gay, or is it the fault of the system? Yeah. And there is some ambiguity in the question, right? Like, uh, just like you were literally pointing. I to think it. I just muttered it at the very end of my question. This idea of you know, is it is it my fault that I'm queer, um, or 
all in all, is it a bad thing, right? Like, you can feel as secure as you, you can feel good about your identity, but maybe when you really start to think about it, you think about maybe the ways it impacts your family, right? And you, you kind of prioritize that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so that's what makes research so interesting is that we're connecting these dots that the people who answer these questions, they're not thinking about it that way, right? They're answering questions in whatever order and they're unrelated. Um, And so it's really us who go in and are like, wait, like, what if we connect this thing to how they feel about sex? Or, oh, like, does whether they're urban or rural make a difference if they like feel comfortable identifying like as, you know, and we we're talking about dom tops and yeah, uh, yeah. sub bottoms or something like that. You know, um, there's always so many different directions you can go with it. And for that study in particular, how many folks were, uh, I guess, surveyed? Yeah. So it was around 600, oh, wow. I think. Which, honestly, in research terms, is not a lot. Um, The cool thing about this study was that um, it was a national representative sample, um, which, for uh, your non-scientific viewers out there, it just means that um, you can draw stronger conclusions about what that means for sort of the general, like, lesbian, gay, bisexual population in the U.S., Um, because they're kind of, they're drawn at random, right? Just kind of like the, the perfect way to do research is you draw a random sample of people and ask them these questions. Um, and the hope would be that's more representative. Um, but yeah, they were between the ages of 18 to 25 and then 34 to 41. Okay. And the original study was designed in a way where they captured generations of queer people who came of age at like very distinct time points. Um, so the oldest came of age, you know, um, after Stonewall, uh, the middle generation came of age during the AIDS crisis. The youngest came of age during the sort of national debate on same sex marriage. Um, and the idea was to kind of capture those unique experiences. Wow. This is great. Well, folks, stick around. We're going to go on a quick break, but we are just getting started on our conversation with Armin Dory. conversation was so goddamn good. That's okay. We can do it again. We can do it again. Uh, For people who have not watched any Drag Race going right into it, what season would you say they should start at and why? I have thoughts, but I feel like... uh, I have thoughts too. Um, You say yours. You say yours. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, For me, it's definitely season five or six. Yes. And I'll tell you why. So I think you need to get into Drag Race if it's your first instruction at a point before it got sort of commodified by... VH1 and got like super super popular mm-hmm. uh, but you also need to get in at a point where production value was like good and you can watch it without cringing yes um, like yeah. some of the earlier challenges or earlier edits uh, those first few seasons Ooh. it looks like uh, like porn set backgrounds oh. where it's like you can tell that that is a fake ass wall and there is nothing hiding that <laughs> and now it's like there's a fake ass wall but there's a $15,000 light on the fake house Yep. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. over the back. Yeah, I just finished 10, which had the one season when Queens come back at the very beginning of the finale. And like the, the main thing that was said was like, with proper light, we are bringing out the season one Queens so that they can have a moment <laughs> in good light. And it was actually really great to, to see season one Queens look good because they were fucking, uh, you know. Fun fact, there was one season one Queen missing. Do you know who was? What? There was one season one queen in the season 10 finale this they did is... not bring on. So uh, what Who was it? it? No, you go. Okay, go ahead and say it. I won't, I won't remember. Tammy Brown. <gasps> oh. Right. That's why. Oh. It's a loss for us all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, 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 right. Ooh. But um. anyways, we could talk about Drag Race. We really could. Like We really could. The entire rest of the episode. 
Yeah. Um, but uh, God damn, how is your research not into drag race, Armin? I think that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good I, question. I think you dropped the ball there, my I friend. Know. <laughs> I know. I truly have um, life choices just not lining up. Uh, yeah, I wish I could just do that. Um, more recently, honestly, uh, related to drag race, my friends have been telling me like you should just quit grad school and become a party planner. Um, oh, really? I loved throwing a themed party. Oh, okay, so okay. Passion. So walk us through some of what you've thrown previously yeah so this was mostly during the pandemic because it was you know the same six of us in you know in one house like celebrating things where it's like this is getting kind of depressing like Mm -hmm. same six people and we're just kind of rotating chairs was it your pod yes even just saying that word i felt like shivers down my back yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. We we all had pods. We had pods early on. I feel like I need to take a COVID test after you just. <laughs> <laughs> and I smell like campfire. Yes. Is that mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Campfire in the middle of the summer when it was too fucking hot. But what else are oh, you gonna do? God. So far away. Yeah. So yeah. So started during the pandemic. The first time we did a themed party was around Halloween 2020, and. That was kind of an eclectic mix, but I definitely gave it a drag race flair. Um, so what I did is I made uh, like all stars type lipsticks for all the attendees. What? And so what would happen is if you won whatever little mini challenge that we had, right? Uh, you would get to reveal a lipstick and make that person take a shot. <gasps> so like from your titty, you draw out the lipstick, like this person is gonna take a shot fun Armin. Wow. that's a good drag because that goes on throughout the whole party oh yeah and we even mm-hmm. had someone self-nominate we literally <laughs> had the, the, the Dela moment <laughs> like i'm going to the bar yeah that, that's good cadence that's the good Dela cadence yep wow i'm gonna vote myself out <laughs> we uh, did uh uh we did a pokemon themed party for my oh, partner uh-huh. that was fun um i we go all out. Like, that's that's the thing, right? It's like, I'm going to commit. I'm a very crafty person. Mm-hmm. The drinks need to be on theme. Yeah. The decorations. So, for the Pokemon one, I made us all Evolution headbands. <laughs> oh. So, I was out there with my scissors. It was literally like a design challenge on Drag Race. Incredible. Um, for my birthday, 2021, we did a Yu-Gi-Oh theme. Gay Yu-Gi-Oh theme mm. for okay. all the nerds out there. How is normal Yu-Gi-Oh not gay? <laughs> um, it is very gay mm-hmm. in itself. Um, but what made it gayer is I designed the cards. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> do you draw? Uh, do you draw? I do. Okay, cool. I do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, you know, changed some of the, the categories, right? So like dragon became, uh, Drag queen. So mm. red eyes, black drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> and then so we just kind of continue that throughout the pandemic, um, every chance we could. Um, it's a lot of work and really stressful. Oh, one of my favorites for Halloween 2021, we did a murder mystery. It was murder at the gay bathhouse. <gasps> oh, wow. It was. I would watch a 45 minute YouTube recap of this party. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I should just recreate it. That's y'all just have to come. I would I, love it. It would be an honor and a delight. It was a mix of uh, a murder mystery and escape room, basically. <gasps> I was visualizing. What? I was visualizing maze and dark corners. So we, I set up our extra room where I had like props and little cards, and you had to kind of figure out who all the suspects were and like solve riddles and like, um, it was. It was a lot of fun. It was stressful, but it was so much fun to plan. That sounds like a blast, though. I'm sure all of your friends were just having the time of their life. Oh, yeah. And we always like to make it competitive. So there's always a prize for, like, you know, who can solve the murder first. Well, this segues into a question I, I do have because I uh, have not been drinking lately. It'll be a year of no booze uh, in March. And so I'm sort of curious about how, like... Because you talked about having some research on... <gasps> Laura, bringing it back to the research. Uh, research. I love research. That's on task. Some research done on... Um, Our dummy on, mommy. On, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, on um, queers and socializing and how alcohol is such a dependent for queers to come together. Mm-hmm. And it is sometimes, you know, the assumed social lubricant that's needed in order for us to, quote, have a good time and, quote, without it, quote, we cannot experience our full queerness. I would be so curious as to what you've you've learned in your research in alcohol in the queer community. 
Yeah, let me, uh, speaking of lubricant, let me <clears throat> lubricate my throat <laughs> and uh, try to keep this concise. Uh, yeah, so there's a ton of research on it. I'll kind of give you the overview of what we know. Um, historically, I think the main reason for why alcohol really is such a big part of queer people getting together, and I don't want to generalize, but sure you know overall is because those were the original spaces where queers could get together right were bars mm. yep and so the only place that felt safe was uh you know a gay bar yeah where people could get together and what do you do at a bar you drink yeah um well, and also one of the only like identifiable spaces because exactly. when we talked with michael barnes he's a local historian right. he talked about one of the first gay bars was on the drag mm. uh and i think there was a house that was near there that two uh, men lived in who were a couple and they had a lot of parties and i think that was like kind of like a known place to go to pick up guys but it was really kind of isolated to a house that just so happened to be set up in a way where they could host parties and then a bar yeah yeah and then so you you take that and then you add on the fact that you know if you're a queer person who's newly out or not even out and you are trying to have your first sexual experience you're trying to date or whatever hook up um what's going to make you feel more comfortable right. it's alcohol right and so you're there and you've never like let's say hit on someone of you know the same sex and so you drink alcohol to feel more comfortable and so i think like historically that's really where it comes from um and then you know with the benefit of decades of research what we see is it's a coping mechanism um, in a lot of ways. And I think it's also can get problematic pretty easily um, in the sense that, you know, when queers don't have a lot of support and really the only thing they have is drinking or other sort of substances to use to deal with sort of the barrage of discrimination and stigma, et cetera, um, it just makes drinking feel like your only option. Um, and so I think that's kind of getting into the more clinical, like public health aspect. But I think if we, in a more sort of every day-to-day -day, uh, way to look at it, what is there to do, right? It's hard to find queer spaces, even now. Oh, yeah. Not just queer space, socially acceptable queer things to do, right? It's hard to convince, like, Macy, you were just talking about this earlier, where you didn't want to go to brunch because you, you know, you weren't sure if you wanted to drink, and so you felt worried that, that like, that would put you in a position, and, like, that's awful, right? Like, in, if you think about it, you should be able to go to these spaces and not feel like you have to drink or feel pressured that you have to drink, um, and I think that is something that, as a queer community, we have not really figured out. no. And it's tricky because there is such a celebratory aspect to it where, um, like, it is fun to, you know, grab cocktails with friends and celebrate, you know, uh, a big personal win or a big collective win or whatever it is. But I think, I don't know, I turned 30 last year and there was just this interesting reckoning of, like, what is it that I'm doing with my queer friends and what I kind of landed on that I personally felt the best about was, you know, like backyard hangs and potlucks and things like <laughs> that. But that's just our friend group, right? That's not something that's designed for a more expansive population. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like a very much a lived experience you learn from. So you go to your first brunch and you don't drink and you see other people hitting the mimosas over and over again. And you're kind of this become this sort of oscillating figure that things can move around. And you're also like, but it is, I am okay. Mm -hmm. You're like, but I am able to have fun. I'm able to gauge in these conversations. And then you see a crux point where it gets messy and you're like, oh, well, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm not there. And then you're like, and then you go home and sober and you're like, well, I was okay. I also saw things that I actually didn't like, whereas I would have been caught up in that beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then the next brunch mm -hmm. that you're at, you're like fully prepared for the socializing part. And then once it hits that crux, you're like this has been my experience. I've been like, you know what? I'm out now. Things are getting messy. I don't yeah. need to be here for this. Like it was fun to a degree. So then you see like, gosh, my habits were so unhealthy. Cause it was like that. Uh, but I also miss Mescal so much. So I don't know. It's, um, 
Ah, mezcal is so it's, good. Uh, what I'm saying, it's a mace. I think like you'll do your first sober brunch and then you'll be like, it was actually not that. that yeah, it's just a barrier degree. that I need to cross yeah. and need to see what it feels like for me personally. Yeah. I mean, at this point, like they have infants at drag brunches. Right. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. you're good. You don't, Probably. You don't have to order. Probably. That. Yeah. People are eating their uh, Benedicts, right? They're, you know, they're not focused on who's drinking or not drinking. Very true. If you tip a drag queen, they're not going to care what's in your hand. <laughs> Very true indeed. Um, okay. If we could, I would love to throw out some pop culture scenarios for you <laughs> and just sort of see what, uh, if anything, that, you know, we're seeing in scripted television or movies uh, has a truthful correlation in research that you've either conducted yourself or something that maybe was a study that you read and are aware of. Um, okay, so I think the first thing is when I was in high school, Glee was on television. Right. And Glee obviously had such a huge aspect of high school bullying and how much it sucked uh, for everyone who was a part of that group, uh, but in particular for Kurt and what was it, Blaine or yeah. like, uh, just like all the characters who are coming out over the course of that. Uh, does that have a sort of direct correlation to reality or is that more of Ryan Murphy's elevated, heightened um, aspect of high school bullying? Hmm. Queer kids getting bullied. That doesn't, have you heard of that? Does is that, that still? No, I think, I think that once, that was gay, 80s, once marriage right? was legalized, yeah, that, that just, that went away bullying completely. went away. <laughs> Yes, that that's definitely something that uh, research has shown time and time again. That's honestly, I think, the basis of queer research that really started mm. this whole field um, was looking at why is this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, discrimination research in general, really, uh, particularly among kids, you know, um, and looking at what is it that makes kids uh, be so awful? Um, and that's actually the crux of what really got me interested. I'm going on a tangent. What got me interested in research was, um, I took a psych and law class, uh, when I was an undergrad at UC Davis and we learned about one of the studies that they used, um, they had the researcher testify. It was part of the case of Brown versus board of education where they were trying to obviously establish that separate is not equal and it's racist. Um, and they used a study where they did this experiment with kids, basically showing them like a white doll and a black doll and nothing was different about the dolls except their skin color. And they were able to show like, you're conditioning kids to see kids of color as other. Um, and this is like way back in the fifties. And so, yeah, I mean, bullying is definitely a thing. Um, and as, I'm sure dramatic as Ryan Murphy is, um, love or hate him, uh, there's definitely some truth in that. Yeah, I think like at the, at the top of this uh, conversation, or, or I think before we started recording, I, I joked about wanting to bring back uh, a slur and I think in a way reclaim the slur. Why? Because I was bullied with it mm-hmm. in in elementary school. I, I looked like a little lesbian. They were right, but that's not the point. <laughs> um, and so the word gay wad was, was thrown at me and I've, I've joked with some friends, some in queer friends and, you know, social settings or whatever being like, I really, I really like that word. I want to bring it back. And everyone's been like, sure. Like no one's anecdotally told me like they were called it, but it's been, it was my experience. So I'm mm-hmm. the one that's more like, you know, on my high horse about trying to bring it back. I think it's a fun word, but I'd, I'd be curious, Armin, like, what do you what do you think about bringing back gaywad slash is there evidence of like this reclaiming it like the word queer I mean we could totally. definitely clover back to that for yeah sure. that I feel like has been from slur something... to community to the preferred term for some people in their identity and their sexuality or sexuality. well and you know it's the name of the show yes. and when we had Kyle DeLeon on he was reluctant to identify as queer and that's something that I think a lot of people who listen to the show resonated with is that even though this is the name of a show that's been around for five years, I think there are certain people who don't even want to say Queer Town out loud. It's, oh, your show or your podcast or that thing, because there's still such a, a stigma associated with it. It'd be like calling it F-Slur Town or something. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. mm-hmm. which I would never be like, oh, I would never want to be a, like, you know, like I wouldn't want to say it. I wouldn't. I never feel comfortable saying that. Word. I don't know. I feel like that could kind of be a rad title. It is pretty yeah, good. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Um, but yeah, I, I think going back to the sort of message I gave my students was nothing's universal, right? I think for a lot of people, queer is a term that has been reclaimed and I personally like it because I feel it's a more inclusive umbrella term Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't just single out like gay or lesbian as the focal point, but really anybody who's different. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can see why someone might not like that, right? Or why they don't identify with that. Um, So it's tricky. I think it really is just about um, respecting how other people feel and um if someone tells you that let's say the f slur which i have zero problem with like i personally use it all the time Mm. um and i've like reclaimed it and even have weaponized it against the straights before (laughs) (laughs) go on (laughs) um but then you know i've met people who don't like it and i'm very respectful of that i'm like okay like i won't say that in front of this person yeah yeah i think laura like no one called me a gay wad, at least to my face, but I was called a faggot. I'll just, here, I'll say it. Sure, yeah, please. Um, and I've been called that word many other times, but rarely by another queer person. I remember years ago, oh. I met up with someone for a first date at Peter Pan Mini Golf, <laughs> and there was some, like, stereotypical sitcom-level, like, alcoholic old man who was just outside of Peter Pan Mini Golf, and he saw me walk up to this other guy, and I guess just based off of the way that we were interacting with each other, he just straight up called us, like, oh, you fucking faggots. And to me, it was something that, I don't know, I guess I just have really tough skin with that. I've just been called it so many times. It was like, well, you know, I guess that is what's happening. We are going on a date here, sir. And, you know, (laughs) have a good night. But the guy I met up with was so uh, unable to move past that. And literally that entire first date, that's all he talked about. Mm. And it was a very interesting sort of disconnect on the same shared experience. Because to me, it was like, yeah, that happened, but I'd rather get to know, you know, all the interesting, sparkly things about you and spend, you know, what time we do have on the excitement of like this date. And instead, he just marinated in it. And, um, yeah. I guess both approaches are optional. It was just a disappointing way to spend that time. Yeah, I think it's what we're saying is it's everyone's unique experience, you know, for you and the person you're on a date on, y'all had very different experiences with that mm-hmm. word or even even in public uh being yelled at in a discriminatory way. Yeah. Uh like maybe you were more centered and more prepared for it because of your glycemic level at the time. You never know. <laughs> but um it's definitely that. It was definitely that. Um yeah. I I think too with I don't think I was really ever called like a fag or faggot um I think I saw it used a lot like I have an older straight brother who would play online video games so sure you can imagine sure. mm-hmm. um so I was able to kind of disassociate how it was used and what it was used for versus it being sort of like a a scarlet letter of like ooh that person's a homosexual Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a bigger problem with the title, like the word gay. Same. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think growing up every single time I heard gay, it was immediately followed by HIV AIDS. Mm. And I think that was a lot of mental garbage that I had to work through. Of It was never referenced in just an organic, informal light. It was always this like really clinical, um, aspect and I think it's because you know I was born in 92 and so a lot of the gay narratives were it was either about a really painful coming out experience or it was a depiction of someone who had HIV and AIDS and was dying like Philadelphia or um even um like Jenny in Forrest in, Gump oh, I she's not gay, say the L like, word <laughs> oh Jenny my god the L word. <laughs> save Dana Fairbanks <laughs> of course you bring it back to the there's L. still time hey look uh there's other shows uh, there isn't uh I'm writing them but 
Um, I, I do have kind of a word question, Mesa, if I if I could, while we're talking about queer language. Uh, of course. I'm, I'm uh, writing up a, a pilot. Uh, it's kind of like a, a friend's living single where it's six. Um, and this is where I, why I'm asking the question. It's six, we'll say lesbian couples to split on the binary, but I want there to be more queerness within them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, like if it was from, speaking in a binary, maybe a male perspective, you'd be like, it's six gay men. But f- or six queer men. Like for me, as I'm writing it, I'm finding it difficult to have language to describe the people that I want to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, in 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 this because I don't want there to be cis gay men. So there and there will be lesbians, but there are also maybe trans people or queer people how they identify. So I'm finding myself saying the word there'll be lesbians and non cis gay men in the show as the leads. Like, is there any other? anything that comes to mind on how I could describe and maybe I'm putting too many labels on it, but unfortunately when you're talking to like producers and executives right. and generals, you need to be able to talk about it. And I struggle with it. So I was like, what a great opportunity to maybe ask, is there anything, how could I describe this pilot? Yeah. I think the important thing is knowing how you use something. And this happens in research all the time, right? The way we describe things is not perfect. Right. Um, a lot of times we do end up being very binary in research, which mm-hmm. is so counter to the whole idea of researching queerness. Um, but at the end of the day, you only have a limited amount of space to talk about something. And so you find the words that are easiest or you categorize people that maybe isn't the, the greatest, right? So you might do it by the sex they were assigned at birth, which is already problematic and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think in, in that case, you... I think like queer people, queer couples, I think using that sort of umbrella term works. Um, I think too, using, it's kind of, I, I've started using y'all a lot more since yeah. I moved to. Oh, mm-hmm. look at that, yeah. that gender nooch term. And I'm not a, um, not that happy about it, but <laughs> I do like it. <laughs> utility. Reluctantly yeah. utility. using it. I do like the utility of it. Uh, folks, I like folks. Yeah. Laura, what about six gay wads? I mean, <laughs> I think in the production room, if I'm f- experiencing joy as I'm saying it, they will be like, we love it. Okay, just imagine Hulu presents six gay wads. Six gay wads um, <laughs> by Laura Delaford. Hulu cancels six gay wads. <laughs> no! <laughs> they can't. They cannot cancel. They can't. Yeah, they the show that is uncancelable. Wait, yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe that's it. Gay wads just sound like... If, if we were to, like, recreate, like, an, a 90s sitcom of, like, a queer group of friends starring, like, uh, Alan Thicke as the dad <laughs> and, like, whoever. And, like, I just imagine, like, a queer group of friends calling them, themselves, like, the gay wads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> or their last name is the wads. Mm. Oh. And so it's six gay wads. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> thank you, Mace. Okay, I think I have my answer. Uh, um, so thank you. I appreciate no it. No problem. Amazing. Okay, well, I got one more scenario I'd like to throw at you, Armin. So have you seen Everything Everywhere All at Once? Of course. Yeah. It is amazing. Life-changing. Life-changing movie. So the mother-daughter rift in that movie, I think, really resonated with me as a queer person. Yes. And I'm curious, based off of the research that you've done or that you are aware of, how parent-adolescent relationships factor into research. Because it seems to me like that's such a core element of queer identity, like, I'm sure it comes up at some point, but like, how do you factor that in or sort of have it basically be like a known control, if you will? That's a great question. It does come up a lot. And I think given the fact that our first experiences with homophobia tend to be with our family, um, I think there's like a recent untucked moment on drag race where someone was like your first my first bully was like my family and i think that's true in a lot of cases right where your very first experience of someone making you question your identity and your value um typically starts with your family uh and so there is a lot of research you know focused on parent adolescent relationships and looking at that being an area where we actually can try to do something, right? So there may be parents who are well-meaning who just don't know what to do. And so 
there are, you know, studies out there and interventions that have been developed where they're like, how do we educate these parents to support their queer kids, right? Um, and so I think it's 100% relevant. And, and the, I think what, the reason why Everything Everywhere All at Once was so um, resonated with a lot of people was it wasn't that, you know, uh, Michelle Yao's character was like super outwardly homophobic and like disowned her daughter. It was sort of this gray area that her daughter existed in, right? Where it's like the family knows, right? Maybe, or maybe the grandfather didn't know, but um, the parents know, you know, she had as a girlfriend um, and the girlfriend is around and is in, in, uh, interacting with the parents. But then like there are those little microaggressions, right? Where it's like, your friend. Right. Right. That being a common one. I'm like, oh, is your friend going to join us? Or, oh, like, we know, but don't tell your grandfather. Like, he's old. Like, we don't want to, he could have a heart attack. And, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that's why I resonated so much. Because not to say that, like, people don't have horrible, 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 violent experiences with their families. That um, that does happen, unfortunately. But I think a lot of people kind of their experiences are in that gray area, right? Where it's like, it's not acceptance, it's more so tolerance. And you question how much you want to push on that relationship with your parents. If it's worth all the emotional energy that goes into it. Yeah, I'm going through one right now where my dad won't stop calling uh, me and my wife um, to people who, he's introducing us as these are my daughters. And... Mm. we're both Latin. Um, I, I, we don't look alike, but like to somebody who's never met us before, their implication is that we are related and we're sisters. And I have to say, oh no, I'm his daughter. This is my wife, Ponica. This is his daughter-in-law. And it's happened a couple times and it's happened enough where I think, again, I don't know how much to push and how much to intellectualize it and be like, dad, there's some internalized homophobia you have to explore. Like you're using this because it's what you're comfortable with but you're being disauthentic. It's making me feel like, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how much to dig in. Yeah. And I think what's complicated in that is, and from an outside perspective, right? Just hearing this right now, it makes me question whether he doesn't know better. And maybe that's his way of trying to be accepting, Mm -hmm. like to really like bring in your wife into the fold. Mm -hmm. Um, And he just doesn't realize that that's what it's doing. So like it it gets tricky, right? Mm Because it gets built up and you're like, what is the person's motivation? What's going on yes, there? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And I've, 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 I've hesitated how much to bring it up because I think it gives him joy to say, and I, and I, and mm. which is my guess that mm. it is coming from a place where he's like, it's so inclusive. Like I love, I love Bonica and he does. And that's the thing. He'll check in uh, constantly. They will message one-on-one. Like he, he really does love Bo and I, and I'm grateful for that, but I feel like there's more there and I want to dig in without, you know, without tarnishing how warm he feels. I mean, it probably wouldn't change it, but I'm hesitant to bring it up. What about suggesting, like, these are my daughter and daughter-in-law? Yeah. And, like... Leaving it at the And back. just, like, you know, kind of train him to do that. So every time he says that, kind of just, like, do a quick little... And see if eventually it catches up. I actually really like that. Thank you. Sure. Yes, it is. This is my uh, therapy. This is incredible <laughs> just to watch in front of me, Armin. What a gift it is. I, I'm loving here. this. I am uh, so much joy. I'm I so charge for session. Yeah, you should. You absolutely <laughs> should. Um, this is out of network, by the way. Yes, this is out of yeah. network. Also, thank you. Uh, so a question that I have is we had touched upon sort of some of the driving factors for uh, what is making queer people want to become parents? Uh, and is there any kind of research out there about the success rate of parents who maybe they're queer, maybe they're cis, uh, who maybe they're straight, um, who are leaning into alternative styles of parenting? Cause I'm kind of thinking of, you know, like the kids are all right, or, you know, these movies that really depict, uh, parents who are struggling to have, earnest and complicated conversations with their kids in a way where it's like, you can be whatever you want to be. Totally. What I think, uh, well, first I'll say is like, I'm not a hundred percent familiar with like this research into parenting styles of, Mm -hmm. which that sounds like a super interesting thing that I would want to look into. 
Um, but what I can tell you from a sort of more general standpoint is, you know, they've there's been plenty of research on kids of queer parents and comparing them to kids of straight parents and seeing that overall there really are no differences in terms of like how they turn out and like their well-being. Um, but I think the, the interesting aspect of queer parenting is for the most part, um, you can't have a kid by accident. Yeah. And so, and especially with how many hoops you have to go through, how much money and all the sorts of things you have to go through to get a kid, you really want that kid, you know? Um, and so I think for like two queer men in relationships or, um, you know, individuals who are not able to get pregnant, um, it's, they have to really wrestle with the idea of like, do I want kids? And I think, and I would guess, and this is just me like sort of putting some dots together without necessarily all the research in front of me to say it, but I would think that makes them better parents because they really had to want that kid. They really had to think about what it means to be a parent, how much they need to love this child and love that child for whoever they end up being. Yeah, that makes complete sense yeah. to me. There's a lot of intention behind it. And I would imagine that is thought through while they're going through all of those hoops and paying all of those hurdles, in particular that the state of Texas imposes upon folks here. Yeah, I think kind of going back to the the pilot I'm writing, I'm going to touch on um, one of the couples is trying to have a, a baby. And I think I want to be as like transparent as possible about like, actual cost and actual um you know the people who are reviewing them as as parents the social workers coming in the cases like i i actually want to be really transparent about that because i don't know about that and i want to go through that with these people that i'm creating in this world i'm making and i'm going back and forth between setting it in texas intentionally or setting it in la so that way it gets picked up but i i might set it in texas because i think it, it there's so much more this is terrible. There's, it's just so much, there's so much more difficulty uh, here while also there's just so much to explain. So it's like, mm -hmm. there's so much beautiful queerness in Austin to show, but there's, uh, we're under the umbrella of Texas and, and I'm, I can feel my own hesitation and do I dig into that a little bit and place people here and go through that uh, without, you know, what's the word, any trauma porning it uh, for the sake of good television? Cause I don't want to do that, but I'd also want to show the honest experience about two women trying to have a kid in Texas. Yeah, I think th that's a very real concern. Yeah. And uh, what I can tell you is if you want to uh, find a conservative community and like difficult situation for queer people to become parents, there are plenty of those in California too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Set it in the OC. <laughs> or uh, the Central Valley. Central Valley? Okay. Which is like, is that like the Iowa of I California. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No offense, Iowa. I'm sure they're lovely queer people. No there. offense, Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for all our Iowa net listeners out there. Yeah. Our, our we love you. Extensive and demographics. You know, I do have a queer cousin who lives in Iowa, so. Okay. There's but one. I don't think he listens to this show. Oh, I would like to good. apologize to all the people of Iowa who <laughs> I offended. I take full account. The sentence was, Iowa, ooh, gross. That's what we said in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I one, don't one thing I did want to point out, mm -hmm. which is super uh, interesting that people might not realize, is the number one way that queer bec people become parents is actually from heterosexual, heterosexual in quotes, sex from a previous relationship. That's interesting. So we're saying in percentage of kids raised by queer parents, the majority have mm -hmm. had them with their Prius um, baby having partner. Right. Yeah. And I think... What wow. we don't want to lose in the conversation, too, which they tend to get lost in a lot of conversations, are people who are bisexual. Yes. Mm -hmm. And my the study that I you know, was just talking about included bi people, both bi um, men and women, again, for apologize for like not including more inclusive uh, sort of terms, but in, in terms of like quantitative research. Yeah. Um, it was super interesting to look at how, where bi people fit into that sort of spectrum of like wanting kids, wondering if they can have kids. And what's super interesting is that 
bi people are actually more like heterosexual people in terms of their level of wanting kids. And there could be tons of reasons for that, but I think one of the obvious ones could be that they just see having kids as more of a possibility. Mm. Like it's more, it's more of an uh, option available to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so that could totally be something that you incorporate, right? Where um, being, even if you're, you know, bisexual and you're in, uh, your partner is the opposite gender of you, that doesn't like erase your bi-ness and like sort of what you have to wrestle with in terms of your identity and even being a queer parent. And so that's, that could totally be something to explore. Yeah, that's uh, juicy, meaty. I like it. That's good, that's good, that's good. Wow. I'm hiring Armin to be the coordinator. You absolutely should. I'm not kidding. Give me any reason to drop out of grass. Yeah, okay, good, 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 good. Um, I'm not kidding, because I want it to be, have education. I want the things that we say to be of the moment, Mm -hmm. uh, so that we can be a time capsule of the moment, because I think it's important to just... Well, it's going to be anyways, yeah. so you might as well lean in 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I want to get it right as much as I can in the moment, right? Because it'll, I don't know, I want it to be as relevant as possible. But that's exciting. I, 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 um, I loved this chat today. This was so amazing. Armin, I feel like we could have a thousand oh, minutes with you. Yes. So we might need to look into bringing Part you two? back. Oh. Yeah. Yes. Because this was so special, so dreamy. It was really incredible to just be in Nora and Ananya's backyard. I mean, the sunshine has just been basking us. So mm-hmm. folks at home, I hope you loved listening to the birds and the neighbors and whoever was on the other side of that fence... Doing some weird thing with some bamboo there. Right, for a we bit saw there. bamboo jostling that's now gone. It's now gone. Um, so the well, link- never called that out, but was was looking at it. <laughs> so, um, if you were listening to Queer Town, thank you uh, for adding some extra sparkles to our day. And Armin, thank you for just making this moment so so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I will always cherish um, you and I melanated, challenged people getting burnt uh, in the lovely sunlight. Um, no, but truly, it's it's been a wonderful experience. And thank you so much for bringing me on. I would love to come back. Episode two of The Queer Strikes Back. <laughs> oh, already got the title. There you go. We just got to book it. Okay. All right. Well, y'all stay queer. And we can't wait to welcome you back here to Queer Town. Love y'all. Bye. Queer Town is a Hey Kerwick production. If you love this show and want us to keep making it, please share QT with the QTs in your life. And make sure to follow us on Instagram for fun behind-the-scenes photos and updates on our live shows. Queer Town is produced by Mace Kerwick and Kristen Washington and is engineered and edited by our pal Drewski Hewlett. Special thanks to our project manager extraordinaire, Lilo Hewlett, for managing our busy schedules. And uh, gotta give it up for those two kitties who make a lot of noise. I love them. I really do. <laughs> Thank you so much for stopping by Queer Town. Bye, y'all. feel about bringing back gay wads can i hear an example of this uh gay wads it's so fun to be here with you and record this podcast (laughs) you can give brevity it's about delivery Mm -hmm. in any way what if like you're in a public space and you have friends who are seated a few tables away and you see them and it's hey gay wads (laughs) how did it feel i thought it was fun i thought it was lighthearted. i don't feel like it was uh beating anybody down or putting anybody down how do you feel about it yeah, I think I would definitely turn around if I heard that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mostly because I'm nosy. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is bringing back gay wads?